Welcome to Climate Now. I'm James Lawler, and today we're joined by Dr. Doan Farmer, who recently co-authored the working paper, Empirically Grounded Technology Forecasts and the Energy Transition, which suggests that the high estimates of the expense to transition to renewable energy have been inflated, and that it may in fact be cheaper to transition to renewable energy than to stay on fossil fuels, not counting the costs of climate impacts. Dr. Farmer is the director of the Complexity Economics Program at the Institute for New Economic Thinking at the Oxford Martin School, Bailey Gifford Professor in the Mathematical Institute at the University of Oxford, and an external professor at the Santa Fe Institute. Dr. Farmer's past research includes complex systems, dynamical systems theory, time series analysis, and theoretical biology. He also designed and built the first wearable digital computer, which he used to beat the game of roulette. So he knows something about mathematical projections. Dr. Farmer, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to have you. Nice to be here. So Dr. Farmer, you have a very interesting background. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you've worked on and how your path led you to your work in renewable energy economics. Well, my past somehow, fate caused me to get very involved in various aspects of prediction. And I've always been really interested in, in the drivers of technological progress. And about 15 years ago, Dan Arvizu, who was the head of the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, came down to the Santa Fe Institute to um, ask us to help them think out of the box about what they might be missing. And <clears throat> we had a workshop, and I realized that the whole question about what this will cost hinges around technological change and whether we can predict the um, costs of energy technologies in the future. So since then, I've been devoting a lot of my research to that question. Now, you've detailed several scenarios in your paper. You've described a fast transition scenario, a no transition scenario, and a slow transition scenario. Could you describe each of these and, and what would put us into any one of them? Yeah. I'll, I'll do that, but I, I want to actually, if I can, I'd first like to say something else that I think sets that question up, which, and if, if you look in our paper, anybody who's motivated to go look at it, figure one is just a, re a historical record of what's happened in the energy system over the last 140 years. And we show both the prices of, of the different sources of energy and the deployment rates of the energy and one of the reasons we've constructed our scenarios the way we have is because something that's very striking from that figure is that um, you see all these wiggly lines, okay? So we're looking at, on the x-axis, we've got the year from 1880 to present. And on the y-axis, we have the cost that we're putting in some standardized units in terms of the cost of generating a megawatt hour of useful energy. And what you can see is that um, you see coal and oil, and those have been going for 140 years, and the costs bounce around a little bit, but the trend is remarkably flat. Uh, in fact, statistic, from a statistical point of view, you can't prove it isn't flat. On the other hand, if you look at some other technologies like solar energy, it's coming down on this scale, you know, sinking like a stone in terms of cost, since its first use in the Vanguard satellite Solar energy has dropped in cost by a factor of more than a thousand, four or five thousand. So that's that's a big change in price. Whereas oil and gas, they fluctuate by factors of two or three, or maybe five or six, but not factors of a thousand. 
Similarly, nuclear power has gone up in price by about a factor of three since its first deployment in 1957. So we're seeing dramatically different behavior. And so now we're looking at deployment. So do you see going back to the beginning, oil and gas and, um, uh, you know, traditional biomass and so on, sort of slowly building through time. You see the nuclear, which initially shot up and then plateaued. And now you see, uh, so we have wind, we have batteries, solar, and we have green hydrogen and electrolyzers. So those are all rocketing up at a pace of about 40% per year. So they're dropping in price in 10% per year and increasing at rates the order of 30% or so per year, depending on which era you look at. And so um, we're seeing dramatically different behavior. And now I should stress, this is all on logarithmic scale. So these are exponential processes and exponential processes have a way of sneaking up on you. So while at present, you know, solar is still only a few percent of energy supply, wind is a, a couple of percent, with these exponentially increasing deployments within 10 years, if it stays on these curves within 10 years, it's gonna go up and, and hit the other ones or pass them. Back to your question then, what are the scenarios? Well, our, our first scenario, which we call fast transition, is a scenario where we just assume we stay on those same trajectories. If wind, solar photovoltaics, batteries, and green hydrogen, and green hydrogen is essential because you can use it to store electricity too for long storage. Like if the sun stops, if the wind stops, you store green hydrogen and then you can burn it just like natural gas uh, when you don't have renewable generation. If those four things just stay on their trajectories for another 10 years, and then they start to flatten out because by then they're up at the scale of the rest, rest of the energy system, I mean, they become dominant in the energy system at that point. Uh, if they can stay on that trajectory for just another 10 years, then um, we, well, then first of all, we pretty much solved most of the climate greenhouse gas emissions due to energy generation, which is 75% of the emissions for climate change. And secondly, our forecast suggests that because those costs will continue to come down with high probability if we continue deploying, then we should see energy get cheaper than it's ever been historically. Mm -hmm. well, well, I'm wondering, is the projection based purely on sort of the mathematical behavior of these numbers historically, or is it more sort of empirically based in the other, rea other sort of contributing factors to these changes in price? It's more the former than the latter. I mean, ideally, you know, as scientists, we like to have causal explanations of things. We don't have a causal explanation. What we do know is that his history says that while you cannot predict exactly what the technological solutions of the future will be, you can predict once technologies or classes of technologies establish a cost trend, they tend to be very persistent. And so, you know, the most famous example is Moore's Law. Moore's Law in 1965, Gordon Moore said that semiconductor devices were increasing in density, doubling in density uh, 
I believe he originally said it every 18 months and then he revised his estimate to be two years. And because increasing the density of components lowers the cost of manufacture, increases the speed and increases the energy efficiency, you know, the semiconductor business has been on a trajectory now for 70 years of shrinkage so that they're now hitting the quantum scale and Moore's predictions have been amazingly accurate. Now, he couldn't predict how they were going to do these things. And he couldn't predict exactly what the solutions would be, but he just noted there was this trend. That's, you know, the most famous example. But there's another actually older example due to Theodore Wright, who in 1936 noted that when planes are manufactured, that the cost of manufacturing a plane uh, from a given factory, a given model of plane coming out of a given factory, dropped by 20% every time the cumulative production of the plane doubled. So that's called Wright's Law. Now, the exact numbers change from technology to technology. Lots of technologies like oil and, and uh, coal don't really follow this because the costs have never really come down. But other things like airplanes and uh, solar photovoltaic cells and wind generators and so on, there are many examples, do follow this with varying numbers of what the percentage is that the cost drops by every time the production doubles. So for solar energy, it's closer to 30% uh, drop in price every time the production doubles. And it's not just specific factories, it really works pretty well for global uh, solar photovoltaic deployment. You described the fast transition scenario, which is essentially what will happen if we remain on course, that if these trends persist in the cost and deployment curves of renewable generation. Would you mind taking us through the other two scenarios that you described? Sure. We've actually looked at even more than that. But so in the fast transition scenario, you know, in 20 to 25 years, we've pretty much gone all the way green. There's no more carbon emissions 25 years from now from energy generation. I mean, there's still, the last things to go are stuff like cement and steel manufacture and those kind of applications where you really need to generate lots of heat. So that's the fast transition. The slow transition is like the fast transition, but slower, which means that natural gas hangs around for a lot longer. And what it also means is that the costs don't come down as quickly because we aren't pushing things, as they would say, down their learning curve. You know, under Wright's Law, if you want, if you want uh, the cost of the plane to come down, you've got to make more planes because that's how you learn, right? You also get advantages of scale and so forth. And we don't, rec we don't realize the cost benefits as quickly. Then we have another scenario, which we, you know, is like the business as usual scenario, where we assume that okay, renewables do keep growing, but we, we just lock in all of our fossil fuel usage right now from now till 2070. So we do that just as a reference point. We've even done one where we assume everything just stays in the proportions it is now. So if we're generating 2% of our energy with solar energy now, we lock that in. And, and, and that, so these are, these are in order of how expensive they are. And then the most expensive of all, is a nuclear transition. So where we assume that we transition to nuclear power over the course of the next 30 or 40 years, 
That's the most expensive of all. And why? Well, because nuclear power is expensive. And, you know, there's nothing to suggest it's going to get cheaper. Right. And that seems to be, that's a view that, that we've we've explored and we will be exploring more, sort of the, the lack of a, a business case for nuclear power. Um, could you talk about the economic profile of each of these transitions? And basically, who realizes each of the, you know, the benefits under these different scenarios? Yeah. Well, I mean, ultimately, in every case, it's the consumers of power who realize the benefits. I mean, it just power gets cheaper. Uh, and so how are the benefits realized? Well, one of the things that happens in the, in, a, in the renewable transition is that a lot of the power system gets electrified. Because, so we either use the electricity directly or we store it. So we either store it in a battery or we use the electricity to make hydrogen and we either store the hydrogen or we then make use the hydrogen to make uh, green ammonia or uh, there's a lot of other proposed kind of fuels one can make and you store those fuels. And give us a sense of the scale of, of these dollars, you know, and, and how that compares to kind of conventional thinking about the cost of the transition. Yeah, well, so it's always tricky to say how many dollars something's going to cost because there's a difference between spending a dollar now and a dollar 20 years from now. And so how do you, do you count the dollar 20 years from now the same way? Generally, people discount future expenditures. Uh, and then there's a lot of fighting about what the right rate should be. So you have to sort of decide what your discount rate's going to be before you can quote numbers. And these numbers should not be viewed as precise numbers. But we expect the, the likelihood is that we'll save the order of $25 trillion by doing the fast transition over the no transition and the slow transition comes out somewhere in between. And that's in some net present value terms. In other words, you're waiting all the dollars we'll eventually spend. And we are talking about no matter what, spending $100 trillion over, for energy over the next 50 years. So, I mean, you know, energy is a significant thing. It's 4% of GDP. Global GDP is the order of $80 trillion. Okay, so 4% of that is like $3.2 trillion a year that we're spending on energy right now. So it's a matter of changing those expenditures. And, you know, in that context, even though we're talking about spending the order of $300 billion for enhancing the grid, because we think the grid needs to be built out by about a factor of four, to make all this happen and to deal with future energy demand, because we're assuming energy demand just keeps going up at 2% per year as it has for the last 30 years, if that continues. So to deal with that and to deal with the electrification of the energy system, we estimate it'll cost the order of $300 billion, which sounds really expensive. But on the other hand, if you know we make energy 10% cheaper, we're saving that every year. Yeah. So what do policymakers need to understand about your work, would you say? Several lessons there. One is we do have to pick winners, you know, and we've done it in the past. Sometimes we pick losers, but we've picked a lot of winners, actually. On one hand, we need to invest in multiple things to hedge our bets, but we can't invest in everything because we invest in everything. We don't make progress in anything. So you need to pick a few things 
and really put enough investment behind them to make them happen. And our paper is contingent on staying on the trajectory that we mentioned. Now that trajectory has been aided by things like price supports in the past. Now, that said, we should be a little careful because, you know, there's always a lot of noise in the press about price supports for solar energy and wind and so on. But the number one energy source that receives price supports is fossil fuels, by far. S second is nuclear power. Third is, is our renewable energy sources. But so, you know, we do need to keep... Uh, the point I was making is that our predictions are really conditional on staying on the deployment trajectories that we're on now. So we need to make sure that we don't hit roadblocks that cause that not to happen. Like one of the potential roadblocks is not enough grid capacity. So we could easily double our energy generation capacity with renewable projects. But the, the bottleneck is grid deployment and grid deployment depends on getting permission to do things. It depends on politics and politics now you're going down to state and local levels. And so we have to grease the wheels to make the political process work so that we aren't blocked from doing what technologically is not very hard to do. And so I think if we can just unblock that process, the rollout will continue. We are going to need to do things like build pipelines for the fuels that we have. We may be able to just repurpose some oil pipelines, but we may need to build some new ones. And these are pipelines for ammonia, probably, maybe hydrogen. Uh, hydrogen's a little harder to ship around because it's very leaky. And, you know, we need to remove the political barriers of incumbents to uh, let everything roll out. You know, so far, we've been able to get there by, you know, states like California have been very avant-garde. And so we've been, the, the, the exponential ride up has been from... The, the easy places to do these things. And it's also easier when you're still only at a few percent. But as, we, as, it, as these become mainstream, it's going to be important to remove the roadblocks. Right. One dynamic that would be playing in, in favor of renewables expansion would just be the increasing proof of the business case becomes, you know, pressure yeah. on the political infrastructure to, you know, to remove the blocks. Yeah. That's, and that's, I think, probably the most important punchline of our paper is that, you know, we could do it cheaply. And in fact, even if you're a climate denier, even for a climate denier, if you really are willing to just look at the economics, it's cheaper. So there's every reason to do it, even if you're a climate denier. It adds a lot of power to the argument that why are we waiting around? Why don't we make it happen? Because the biggest resistance is coming from the incumbents, you know, from the fossil fuel companies who don't want to let go of their franchise and are very worried about going out of business as a result. A lot of them probably will. So, you know, I, I'm shorting oil companies. But, and then I think one other thing to go back to your question is that energy storage is critical. That's the weak link right now. We really need to boost hydrogen-based fuels in particular, to make sure that we keep that, that is the most critical thing of all. Because once solar and wind start to be above 50% of the power generation, then you really need storage to make sure that the power is reliable. I wonder if, if we could talk a little bit about CCS. You, you say that 
in the paper, within a few decades, electricity produced with CCS will likely not be competitive, even if CCS is free. Why is that? And where do you see carbon capture and storage in the coming decades? Yeah, well, so let's distinguish two kinds of carbon capture and storage. One kind is the kind we're referring to there, which is that the way you produce electricity is you burn the coal or the gas, you put a scrubber in the smokestack that takes the carbon dioxide out before it's released into the air. And then you take the carbon dioxide that you have and you put it in a form where you can inject it deep in underground where it won't come back out. And the reason we're saying that's dead on arrival is because from our projections, it's very likely that renewables are gonna be cheaper than coal or, or gas. And so, okay, carbon capture and storage is just gonna to add to the cost. So it's just uneconomical, period. Now, there's a different kind of carbon capture and storage that we're probably going to do. Uh, I think the question is what will it cost, which is to, to take it out of the air. Now, that's harder than taking it out of a smokestack because the carbon dioxide's not as concentrated. But we will want to do that in order to suck back out the one and a half degrees of warming that we've already put into the atmosphere. And so we may decide we want to take that back out. There will we, be, we will be aided by having very cheap electricity to drive that process. And I think the jury is out as to what that will ultimately cost. You know, how, how many dollars per ton will that be? And what's the time frame, do you think, for sort of the, the total transition of the, of the power generation se sector or electricity generation well, sector? Well, you know, mm -hmm. if, if, if the fast transition that we hold up, we're really in 20 to 25 years. Mm -hmm. We've pretty much done the whole thing. Carbon emissions go down close to zero. We're talking globally. Now, of course, the political situation is very complicated. China has a, a million coal workers who have some power. And so you've got to get, you know, really getting this done requires shutting down all those coal plants and coal mines and reintegrating people into other activities. And so there is a lot to be done there. But I, the hopeful thing is that economics will be able to drive a lot of this. So... What do you think that the investor community, people whose job it is to deploy capital, what should they understand about your research that perhaps not enough of them understand? Well, we're actually writing a paper on trying to predict when the fossil fuel industry will collapse. And have, if, the, if you believe in our fast transition, then it tells you that the fossil fuel industry is gonna collapse in the next 20 years. And it's gonna to start to collapse in the next 10 pretty dramatically. Uh, so, you know. Uh, <laughs> Don't put your money fuel. there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I sure wouldn't be investing in it. And uh, you know, it's, it's crazy to build new infrastructure for fossil fuels at this point. There's gonna be a lot of sunk cost because ultimately it'll, it'll be cheaper to just realize the sunk cost because it's cheaper to just shut down an old coal plant and replace it with renewable plant because the operating expenses of the coal plant will already be, and the operating plus the cost of the coal is gonna be 
more expensive than buying a new solar photovoltaic farm. So, and, and the corresponding storage capacity. So, yeah, I think for investors, you know, I think there still is not a full realization of the economics, the favorable economics of renewables. By the way, the other thing that I think may be a big change is renewables may make energy prices much more stable. You know, oil has swung, you know, between, I think in 1998, it got all the way down to $11 a barrel. And it's now, you know, over 100. Uh, so it's been swinging through a big range. And I think, I think we'll see much steadier energy prices. And steady energy prices are a good thing because volatility is difficult to deal with. Yeah. It allows people to plan their activities better. Right. Okay. Wondering if, you know, so infrastructure, infrastructure lasts a long time. And the question is, won't the fast transition be too fast for existing infrastructure that's being built, which might result in stranded assets? It's worth realizing that we're replacing infrastructure all the time. So we spend time looking at stuff like, what's the average lifetime of a gas station, right? What's the average lifetime of a, of a power line? What's the average lifetime of a pipeline? So those things have to be replaced at regular intervals too, and we're replacing them on an ongoing basis. So uh, that combines with the fact that, well, so let me just make a statement. So if, if the typical time is 25 years, if you're turning over all the infrastructure every 25 years, then if, if we're gonna make the transition in 25 years, that gives us time to replace all the infrastructure. We just stop building new fossil fuel infrastructure and we build renewable infrastructure instead. Now, it helps also that if we go on increasing global energy consumption at 2% per year, that gives additional turnover, right? Because that's new stuff that we're building. So in other words, an increasing fraction comes from that. And realize also that a lot of the energy growth is coming not from the United States, it's coming from all the countries that are developing that are starting to use more energy as their standard of living goes up. So that energy, increasing energy use is something that's going for some good cause, some good things. But yes, now we may end up having to strand some assets despite that, particularly if we don't get going now. But we don't think it'll be that bad because of the arguments I just made. And we go through all that in some detail in the supplementary material of our paper. It's a very good question. Well, Dr. Farmer, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's really been a pleasure to, to talk with you and very interesting. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. That was Dr. Doan Farmer of Oxford University. And to sum up the conversation, it sounds like wind and solar are on a cost curve to continue getting cheaper and could replace fossil fuels in the next 25 years. But if policies block grid expansion, that would end up being more costly for all of us. Renewables are simply cheaper. To read Doan's paper, check out our other interviews or watch our videos, visit climatenow.com. If you'd like to get in touch, email us at contact at climatenow.com. Climate Now is made possible in part by our science partners like the Livermore Lab Foundation. The Livermore Lab Foundation supports climate research and carbon cleanup initiatives at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab. 
which is a Department of Energy Applied Science and Research Facility. More information on the Foundation's climate work can be found at livermorelabfoundation.org. That's it for this episode of the podcast, and we hope you join us for our next conversation.